Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hi, I'm Carrie Lucas, the Managing Director of the Independent Women's Forum. Welcome to the latest edition of the Working for Women podcast. I'm honored to, today to be joined by IWF Senior Fellow Patrice Anvuka. Patrice, as you know, February is Black History Month, and we'd like to take this occasion to take a uh, talk a little bit about the challenges and opportunities that are facing the Black community, and particularly the younger generation today. So, Patrice, thank you so much for being with me. Thanks for having me, Carrie. Great. So, to get started, uh, you just can you give a little bit of your perspective? What do you see as the biggest challenges facing the Black community, particularly millennials and the younger generation? So, I think the biggest challenge are two, really, employment and then obtaining the skills or education you need to be employed in the future markets or in the future economy. So when we look at employment right now, it's no surprise that um, employment numbers overall have increased, but it still lags substantially for a young African-American. Um, we're looking at about 15% for a young black person being unemployed or underemployed. And we're talking about young people who you know, either cannot find a job or are working part-time but would, ra- but would rather have a full-time job. And then if we dig a little bit deeper, we would see that, you know, young people, African-Americans who are 16 or older, you know, increasingly they're not even in the labor force. Uh, the, the participation rate for young African-Americans is lower today than it was before the recession. Uh, and, and median incomes tend to be lower than their peers. So we have to wonder, you know, why are young, young people of color not able to find employment and why are they simply dropping out of the jobs market? And I think it's linked to the second issue, which I brought up. And that's obtaining the skills and the education that you need to find employment in this, in this market. You know, while young people of color are making strides in attending college and, and even earning a, an associate's degree or some college, uh, it's still only about 30% of the, the, the black population who have that level of education. Um, uh, still, you know, we're, that means that if you need, if you're looking for a job and you don't have even, and you only have a high school diploma or don't even have a high school diploma, you're already at a disadvantage in, in the workforce. Uh, and then when we look at the types of jobs that are, be, are being created and the ones that are going to exist in the future, those are going to demand a higher level of skill or a higher level of education. And unfortunately, a lot of young black people uh, in this country today are not getting the skills and the education they need. Yeah, no, that's you. It's really interesting. I really, um, I appreciate. I think when we do talk about kind of what are those root causes, and especially what what are the things that we can um, that there's policy solutions to. I feel like education reform always comes to my mind first, and I know that's an issue you and I have um, have talked about. Um, you know, and I, when we talk about education reform, I think a lot of times you, know, I, I first start thinking of, of improving um, schools, especially inner city schools, and things like school choice. But higher education reform and the, the issues of affordability um, also are a tremendous um, issue for, um, for young Americans, and particularly African Americans. Um, can you talk a little bit more about this? What, you know, what is the, the, the issue when it comes to education? You know, where, are, are there particular problems that are facing minority communities, or what do you see as kind of those big roadblocks when it comes to education? Yeah, so I mean, educational is fundamental for, you know, uh, for a successful future. And, and let me just caveat, make a big caveat here. I'm not saying that, you know, a four-year college degree is the level of education that's needed. But what I am saying is that we need to ensure that our kids, um, starting at the, the primary and secondary level, have the basic skills that they need. So let's, let's just take a step back and look at, you know, how young people of color are faring, particularly, particularly African-American students, and they are performing uh, at a mediocre level compared to their 
they're, they're, um, they're, they're peers. For example, 15 out of 20 black students graduate from high school today. That's compared to 18 out of 20 white students. You know, when you look at performance and math, you know, just 7% of black students are at a proficient or, uh, or above level. And these are 12th graders. So if, if you're not even able, if 93% of our black 12th graders, you know, are not even able to, to, to perform basic math functions, how are we expecting them to find employment, you know, once they graduate from high school? Or how are we able to, you know, see them successfully get a, a two-year degree, a four-year degree, you know, whatever level of education that they need? Um, and so part of it, everyone points to spending more money. Let's dump more money, pub, um, public funds in public education. But the United States is in the top five countries around the world in terms of how much money yeah. we, we spend or invest in, in, in um, K-12 education. Yet, you know, a city like Washington, D.C., that has the highest number of young of black students have woeful performance levels. So it's not about more money. It's about spending the money in quality ways. You know, that's where um, school choice comes in. That's where um, choice in education comes in, where, you know, if a young person, and I grew up in a a poor neighborhood, um, so I definitely understand that, but if a young person like me is enterprising and I I have a parent who is driven, I should be able to take the investment in me, the public funds are invested, and take it to a maybe a charter school or maybe even a, a private school where I can flourish and grow and learn. But for too many young students, that is not an option. And then let's say you get out of high school and are able to, to go to college. Well, you know, getting into college is, is just the first step. Um, from a, a performance up, you know, perspective, a lot of young students, a lot of African-American students are not prepared for the level of rigor that a college, um, a, a, a college um, degree or course requires. So they end up in remedial courses, and that just adds money to the cost of them attending. And of course, for African American students and all students, the cost of college is ridiculous today, and that has a lot to do with federal funding in the higher education system. That 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 gives um, colleges and universities no reason to lower their costs; they just continue to stack it. And what happens, unfortunately, is that you have black first-generation college students incurring more debt um, than than their peers. You know, about half of them take out more than twenty-five thousand dollars. That, that's, that's the size of a, uh, of a year's worth of salary for, you know, some starting jobs. And so um, African-American students, if they're even able to get out of high school, get, their, get a, a high school degree and find themselves in college and get out of college, you're narrowing that pool substantially, but now they're getting out of college with high debt. And they're, they're getting into a job market that is going to be tremendously difficult for them. So you know, we've got to start at the basic levels and look at choice and competition and opportunity. All of those things, whether at the, at the K-12 level or at the higher education level, lower cost and provide more opportunity for young African-American students. You know, you, um, Patrice, I so appreciate you talking about this idea of that more money isn't, isn't the answer. I remember hearing, um, you know, when you total up all the money that's spent on a per-people per basis in Washington, D.C., each a kid who goes through 12 years of public school at Washington, D.C. has had more than a million of public dollars invested in them. And gosh, you know, you think they're not getting a million dollars or your grocery kids are not getting a million dollars worth of education out of it. You know, that is a, a tragedy. It's a tragedy for that child and it's a tragedy for society, which is, um, you know, which is, you're blowing all this money, and then and this kid still doesn't have the skills that he or she needs to succeed. I mean, there's so much more we can do. You, you think about all of the, the advancements that we have in technology and all these things that, um, you know, and I'm, I'm lucky. My, I've got 
five kids and we're in a, a big public school and they're doing kind of amazing stuff and using technology. And I think to myself, you know, this shouldn't, you know, this isn't, a lot of this stuff is free. You should be able to have teachers, kids um, uh, from anywhere dialing in to some of these best teachers and at least take part in some of these classes. There's too many, you know, we start thinking outside of the box a little bit. Education reform seems like mm-hmm. it has so much potential. It'd be, it'd be so important for people. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Carrie. I mean, uh, you know, the way we learn today um, is so different from the way we learned 50 years ago. And education, you know, removes those boundaries where you can, you, where our students today should be learning with students, you know, um, in China or in Malaysia right yeah. now using technology and using, you know, video capabilities. Um, there are they're, they're, uh, organizations like Khan Academy that are helping students learn the basic fundamentals that they need in math or, or, or science or reading that they can then build upon. But unfortunately, our system is one where it's, you know, um, it, it, you know it's dollars for every head that moves into the next level or next yeah. grade. And so you're passing kids on even though they're not prepared for what's next. And they are the ones who suffer. It's not the education system that suffers. You know, they have a, a, a guaranteed fund source from Washington, but it's the kids yeah. who find themselves not able to, to function in society and to, and to find themselves in the workplace. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We kind of move on to your next point, which was on, on the problems with the job market. You know, I, I think that that's something, um, so you know, we have this problem with a lot of um, people coming out or entering the job market with, with too few skills um, and, um, and then, you know, there are not that many jobs out there. You know, I know one thing that, that people often, often hear when you talk about kind of solving the problems or helping people with lower incomes is boosting the minimum wage um, so that people starting out earn more. Um, what do you think? Is that, is that going to help people? Mm-hmm. I, I love to talk about this one because it seems like it comes from a great place. We, we want everybody to have bigger paychecks. They can do more. They can buy homes. They can, you know, take care of their kids and make sure there's a hot meal on the table. You know, but... You know, increasing the bottom is not the way to do it. Higher minimum wages, arbitrary minimum wages that we're seeing, like $15 an hour, it sounds really good uh, until you see what happens as a result of it. Um, So minimum wages, and we're seeing this happen in, in places like Seattle, that was a leader. You know, a lot of the, there are jobs that have been eliminated. Um, restaurants have been shut down. In some instances, service providers that help people who are disabled um, and, and, um, and not able to take care of themselves, they've had to uh, cut staff because they can't afford to do that. Or on the other end, uh, customers are seeing increased, uh, increased prices, surcharges. So, for example, on some, some uh, uh, a small Christian-based organization that provides daycare, they actually in, added a $300 surcharge on top of um, the weekly payments for the students that go to their daycare simply because of the increase in the minimum wage. So, you know, that, that's, you're talking about a cost to families of a higher of, of more money, and, and particularly low-income families, African-American families, they don't need that added cost. But then let's also look at on the employer side what happens. Well, you're making a worker more expensive to hire. And, and especially when you're talking about low-skilled workers, those are the first people to get cut. So where at, at a restaurant, for example, you may have five uh, minimum wage workers. Well, the minimum wage increases, you know, to the point where you're adding $10,000 in new added costs. You can, you're, you're likely to either cut one or two workers or you'll cut the hours of everyone that you have employed. Uh, and, and so at the end of the day, People are going to get hurt, and it's the people that are meant to be helped by things like minimum wage increases. You know, and, and another really interesting – oh, sure, go ahead, Carrie. 
Oh, no, I was just going to, I bet, I bet we're, we're going to be, I'm, just, I'm bringing up the point you were about to say. You know, I, I know that um, you know, so much of what you learn on that first job, you think of, you know, my first minimum wage job, the, the most important thing I learned was, hey, you've got to show up on time. Um, you know, it wasn't so much about getting, about taking the money I was taking home as a high schooler. It was about kind of learning those disciplines and those skills that are really getting a work history started and showing that I was going to be responsible enough to show up and do what I was supposed to do. Um, you know, it's hard to put a, a price tag on that, but it's certainly valuable for the worker just to kind of get that foot in the door. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I, it's, I think it's something about 60, 60 to 70% of minimum wage workers are between ages of 16 and about 30. So these are not people who are necessarily raising families on minimum wages. These are young people like yourself, like myself, when I had my first job as a barcoder at a library. You know, basic skills, building my resume. But it's not where I planned to live and, sp- and build a career. It's just a launching pad, and that's what it's intended to be. But, you know, it's the uh, interesting uh, other in- unintended consequence, Carrie, of, you know, minimum wages is speeding up technology's removal or replacement of jobs. Um, so, you know, I'm sure we can get into this as we have other discussions. But, you know, when, uh, when you increase the cost of hiring and employing a, a young person, an African-American, you know, young woman or man, um, minimum wage increases make them more expensive. So all of a sudden now you're thinking, well, in the long term, how do I cut my costs and ensure that I can still stay in business or stay competitive? And that's where, um, you know, services, automation, um, conveyor belts, you know, kiosks, all of those things are starting to replace things like, you know, um, um, workers at, 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 you know, restaurants, um, maybe servers, bussers, people like that who, you know, it's a small, slow-skilled job, you know, first job can easily easily be replaced over the long term by, um, by a machine or a robot. And that's what we're starting to see as well. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that, that's really it. There are, it's so it's so interesting how so many of these well-intended policies end up backfiring. You know, another big issue that I know you've spent some time on, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, is the prison and justice system reform. Because I know that this is something that um, that disproportionately has affected minority communities, and it's really um, it's uh, you know, we need to rethink how we can to make sure that that um, you know this this justice system isn't. Um, is it backfiring on America and particularly on on the on, on these communities? So can, can you tell me a little bit about some of the work you've done on um, on, on prison and justice reform? Yeah, absolutely. So this one I'm really passionate about. You know, when we look at our our justice system, we want to ensure that we are putting the right people behind bars. And we want to ensure that the punishments that we need out are are commensurate, that they make sense for the crimes that have been committed. Unfortunately, we have a system that's out of whack where punishment does not fit the crime. Um, and we're, we're over-criminalizing, number one, the, the types of things that need uh, to be, that, that are considered crimes. And then we're giving people punishments that just don't make sense. You know, as a result, we've seen incarceration rates spike as we millennials have been born and come of age. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 2.3 million people in the United States that are incarcerated. And, and, and what, what's worse is that for African Americans, they are disproportionately making up that 2.3 million. We're talking about 1 million Afri- blacks, blacks constituting, excuse me, the prison population in this country. Uh, and it, it comes with a cost, particularly to that individual. Um, jail time reduces a young person's ability to work over the next decade by something like 25 to 30%. And a, a criminal record, it carries almost like a scarlet letter on your ability to find work in the future. So if we're saying to people, okay, you, you, you've done the crime, we've punished you, you've served your time, now go out into the world, how do we expect them? How do we ensure that when they go out, they're able to be reintegrated into society 
number one by finding a job. And that's the hardest thing. So I think when it comes to solutions, you know, we have to reform our criminal justice system in a way that makes sense. And that, that starts at the federal and even the state level where you can reform sentencing so that, yes, we punish crimes, but we don't we ensure that the punishment is not out of whack with the level of crime that was committed. And we get creative, too, with the punishments. Not everything needs jail time. Sometimes some, what, some, what a young person needs is just, you know, maybe they need to pay back for the, the window that they broke, or maybe they need to be in a rehab um, facility to help deal with the actual drug issue that they're dealing with. That then gives them a second chance or actually a, a first chance at opportunity. And then when, we, when they get out, you know, at the state level, occupational licensing reform is huge. It's, it's a great opportunity to say, look, we have a ton of jobs that are not going to be replaced by, by robots. I mean, my hairdresser at the, at the salon I go to, the florist that I go to, you know, um, the, the EMT that, that helps that, that, that is a first responder when someone gets sick. These are the types of jobs and opportunities that, unfortunately, if you have a criminal record, you cannot even uh, get into. And so at the state level, we're seeing lots of states um, like Ohio, for example, you know, pass occupational licensing reform as part of their larger criminal justice efforts. And that gives opportunity back to a young person, particularly a young person of color. I mean, there, there are solutions. The problems are big. But I think if we take smart, common sense solutions, um, that we can start to see some changes in, in both opportunity for young people as well as, you know, what it, what it, it, you know um, the, the effects of the criminal justice system in their lives. Yeah, well, yeah, I really appreciate that. It's, it's interesting. I think that um, so, so often people are confused about what we're talking about when we talk about prison reform. And, um, and this is about, about it's not about, um, you know, not recognizing the need to, to, um, to lock up violent criminals. But it's about making sure that the criminal the justice system isn't actually creating criminals. So much of what happens, especially to young people, is, is making it so a life of crime is all they all they have the potential for, and that's that's an absolute tragedy. And it's not something that we should tolerate in this country. And I really hope that that's something that we can increasingly make a priority. But you know, Patrice, I feel like this is this is a topic we could um, talk about for about forever. So I'm just going to close off with asking one more question on you know what are your hopes for the future, and particularly we obviously just had our first um, black president, and, um, and now mm-hmm. we started a new administration. What are your hopes for the future, and what do you think we can, um, we can hope to see in a, a couple years down the road? <laughs> well, you know, first I want to say that being a young black uh, person today, you know, I, I see so much opportunity in a way that I didn't see it when I, when I was much younger, um, and I think past generations can say the same thing. It is better to be a young person of color in today's world, it, partly because we see so many more examples of, of, um, of people we can aspire to. And I'm not talking about celebrities and music and, and, and sports, the, the usual go-tos. I mean, where there are CEOs of companies like TaskRabbit, a young black woman, um, owners of major um, television networks like, the, um, like Deborah Lee and her husband, Robert Johnson. They started BET. A, they sold it for billions of dollars. You know, and I, I don't know if you watched Grey's Anatomy or Scandal, Carrie. I was a huge Scandal <laughs> fan, and I, I come back and forth from time to time. But Shonda Rhimes, a, a black woman. So there are examples today of, of, of what young people, black people can aspire to, 
aspire to beyond the traditional sports and, and, and music and entertainment, not to take anything away from that. And so what I'm looking forward to is ensuring that young people continue to have those opportunities and continue to see examples of what they can do. But when you're talking about business and owning business, you need to see regulations scale back so that you can continue to hire other young, talented black people or people of all color for that matter. And so when I think about the Trump administration, that's what I'm looking forward to, scaling back regulations, cutting taxes, making it easier for a young person to pursue their dreams and, and really unleash the potential that's inside every one of us. Well, gosh, thank you so much, Patrice. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate getting your perspective on this. And to everyone who has listened Absolutely. to this podcast, thank you for your time. And um, for more podcasts like this and other information, please come visit the Independent Women's Forum at IWF.org all issues are If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.